0: Hi, I'm Michaela mcguire scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2022 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fantastic panel discussions on the threats and opportunities facing our cities. Cities in a Sunburnt Country is a book that considers how Australians have provided water and sewage for growing, sprawling urban centres. In this episode, Claire Smith from the Department of Management at Monash Business School sits down with four of the co-authors of this new book, including environmental historians Dr. Margaret Cook and Dr. Ruth Morgan, Associate Professor in the Department of Economics and Head of the Monash Business School Lionel Frost, and Professor of Economic and Business History at the University of South Australia Martin Shanahan.
1: Before we begin, I would like to pay my respect by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land each of us is on, depending on where you are. I am on Bunurong country, which covers the coast from the Werribee River in the Northwest down to Wilson's Prom in the Southeast, as well as French and Phillip Islands. And I pay my respect to the traditional custodians, their elders past and present. I also acknowledge and welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. I think the acknowledgement is particularly salient considering the importance of the relationship and connection our First Nations people have and always have had with waterways, land and sea. So welcome everyone to the Festival of Urbanism and in particular to our discussion about the new book Cities in a Sunburnt Country. So the way this will work is I will just offer a very short introduction to the territory of this work. And then we'll have the pleasure of hearing from four of the authors about this book. So over to the book, Cities in a Sunburnt Country, Water and the Making of Urban Australia. Uh, Water is used for many things, as we know, drinking, irrigation of crops, domestic and market gardens, industry, hygiene, cooking, fire safety, cooling, hydroelectricity, fishing, sewage disposal, transport, and leisure activities, among others. Its scarcity causes the kind of panic that leads to fierce legal disputes at best, water wars at worst, and too often its abundance is taken for granted or indeed feared when major major, um, flooding occurs. It's no wonder then that for millennia, water has been equated with life itself and been seen as a spiritual embodiment. From the earliest civilization extant, Australia's First Nations people, water has been identified as the lifeblood of all things. Now this book authored by seven experts in their fields, traces the use and abuse of water from the sophisticated knowledge of our First Nations people through micro and macro management to current challenges faced in a warming and drying continent. It draws attention to the folly of insisting on replicating management developed for a vastly different environment through periods of population implosion. Like the industrial revolution, the enlightenment, two world wars. It focuses also on the need to retrofit existing infrastructures in response to increased demands to embrace new technologies previously dismissed and also to develop entirely new technologies. We're privileged today to hear from our four esteemed panelists about their work. We're lucky to have here with us. I might start um, by asking you, Lionel, how did the book come about and what brought your team together and where did the idea for a book on water in Australian cities come from? Uh,
2: thank you, Claire. And thank you to everyone uh, for joining us. Um, I would just like to start by reiterating uh, Claire's acknowledgement of country. One of the one of our sincere hopes in this book is that this will provide an opportunity for um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians to learn from each other, and for me, as a non-Indigenous Australian, to to share in the knowledge of Indigenous uh, use of water, management of water. Uh, it's, it's been a, a, very rewarding experience. So my hope is that our book helps to spread knowledge uh, and to educate people uh, about how we've used water in the past. Um, Claire, in response to your question, the book actually came about. um, I I did some research on this and the beginnings are traced back to early 2011, which is a frighteningly long time ago, but that was when the Collaborative Research Centre on Water Sensitive Cities was established. And as part of that process, researchers from Monash, the University of Queensland, University of Western Australia, expressions of interest were called to participate in four projects about water sensitive city design. And one of them, project number two, was called Societal Innovation and Behavioral Change. And uh, there was an expression of interest called for people who were interested in looking at history. And so a group of us developed a sub project. And at the time I didn't know any of my current team. And it was um, that was the way that I met Ruth, Andrea Gaynor, our co-authors. I, I knew Peter Spirit just a little and I never met Jenny Gregory but the four of us and a few others worked on a report on how water had been used in uh, Melbourne, Perth and Brisbane and that was just a, just a short report. We also worked on an online exhibition for the Rachel Carson Centre in Munich Uh, on how Australians have responded to water crises, we then took the show on the road, we we went to the meetings, we talked about our common interests and we found that there was some common ground, not just our interest in history, Uh, but I'll talk about that common ground in just a moment. We took a show on the road. We went to an international water history conference in Delft and over dinner one night, Ruth will probably remember this occasion. We, um, we just said, Hey, why don't we apply for an ARC, a grant? And after a couple of attempts, we were successful. We drafted Martin onto the project and then Mark and Margaret joined having just published her book on floods in in brisbane and the brisbane river so um where did we get the idea for for a book well the projects forced us to share our ideas and our perspectives and what i thought was really interesting was that although we were a mixture of economists slash economic historians like myself and Martin, uh, environmental historians like Ruth, Margaret, Andrea Gaynor, and urban planning historians like Peter Spirit and Jenny Gregory. We all had interests that crossed over those boundaries. The environmental historians were very literate about principles of economics. Martin and myself, very interested in environmental issues. So we had a common interest in history, and none of us were operating from a position of superiority in a disciplinary sense. I had no sense that economics had all the answers and that we couldn't learn from each other. And by sharing our ideas uh, about how we approach common problems, problems such as water management, climate change, These are all so-called wicked problems that can't be solved by any one discipline and they call for interdisciplinary research, so we parked our egos, we listened to each other, we were convinced that uh, we weren't necessarily right and there were several discussions where we shared our views, in some cases modified them, in some cases stick to our own guns, but I think the, enviro- the, the cross-disciplinary approach um, proved very fruitful. Now we um, just, it, how did the book come about? We, in the process of putting together the ARC application uh, for a discovery grant, we also did a, guess, a special issue of Journal of Urban History on water in Australia and California. And as a result, really as a result of that, we were able to negotiate a contract with Cambridge University Press uh, to do a book in their History of the Urban Environment series. And one of the things the editor, uh, John McNeil, insisted on was that we don't do a book of essays for seven authors. And that suited us fine because we were already talking to each other. We're already learning from each other. And if you look at the book, they'll, you'll notice that there's a common voice in there and that was through the editing process. Uh, so there's no chapter where it says, Martin Shanahan does the whole thing. There's nothing that Ruth Morgan has done on their own. My, co-authors will remember how we fired emails across to each other and in the process we sort of bashed the thing into shape and so it's very difficult to know I think it'd be very difficult for an outsider to know who wrote what bits even if they were familiar with our work we also wrote the thing during COVID of course we had planning meeting in Canberra just before COVID hit. And that was the last time we were face to face. I I think I've got this right. I still haven't seen Ruth or Margaret face to face since then. It might have been something I said or it could have been um, it could have been COVID related. But yeah, it was an interesting process um, which I'm sure people in the audience will 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 empathize with that um, Writing a book by email is a a difficult sort of thing. Just quickly, I've probably taken up too much time. The point about us learning from each other in disciplines, economics and environmentalism are often seen as opposed to each other. It's often argued that we're rivals in an intellectual sense, I don't see it that way at all for me the key thing is that both economics and the study of ecology um, have a great reliance on the concept of equilibrium that either nature or human behavior is at an equilibrium point the carrying capacity of the environment or the ability of people to maximize their well-being these these are, are, are fundamental things if we think of it that way, we can think about some very common ground and in in the book, we draw very much on a concept that was elaborated by Eleanor Ostrom, Friedrich Hayek and others, the importance of bottom up solutions to our water management problems. In the book, we talk about how a democratic system like Australia that had high standards of living consciously sought to replicate the standards of water supply and sewerage systems that existed in the UK. Most of the management of those problems has come from government departments or non-elected public authorities, so a very top-down process, but at the same time there has been a bottom up set of pressures being placed on the type of water systems that Australians have wanted. This is what Eleanor Ostrom talked about when she said that humans have displayed an ability to manage their resources. As they come together and interact uh, in normal economic life, collaborative solutions are found that can impact the way the top-down solutions are imposed so often the challenges for uh, government departments in providing water has been just keeping up with where Australians have wanted to live in, in for much of our history that's been in suburban areas and there's been a preference for high standards of suburban housing that creates very high demand for water and High usage, high expectations for not only clean water, but effective sewage disposal. That wasn't always done effectively. It wasn't always evenly provided. And those are the sort of challenges that the book looks at. So I've probably said enough. So I hope that answers your question, Claire.
1: Thank you, Lionel. That's great. It's also wonderful to hear of people making some fruitful progress during those. COVID years, and it's fantastic hearing about, you know, great work being done across those different disciplinary perspectives. It's so nice to see that coming together and hearing that that allows you to sort of, you know, um, hone each other's ideas, I guess, and and get to this point. Um, Please other panellists feel free at any point if you have something to add, just conversationally drop in, let me know you're there and contribute it at whichever point you'd like to. Thanks, Lionel, for that start. Uh, I'd like to move on if I could now please to Margaret. Welcome, Margaret. Um, Nice to see you. Now, my question to you is, how does Australia deal with the need to provide increasing volumes of potable water to growing cities in this dry country without adopting new strategies?
3: Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I mean, the short answer is, is I don't think we can. And um, when Lionel's talking about how our different disciplines work together, one of the ideas that we draw on really heavily in this book is this idea of path dependency, which is actually an economic theory. And so what we found in our research is that since British colonisation, we have had this preoccupation with providing potable water because it's a dry country. And the solution very early was to build dams in all of the capital cities. And that's really been a bit of a preoccupation ever since. Perth was a bit of an outlier on that one in that it decided to use underground water as well. But largely, we've relied very much on harvesting the water that falls out of the sky and not really being that creative about other ways of doing it. And I think what we found was that as a result, with that um, urban concentration that Lionel pointed to, we started looking at how to build these reservoirs and these dams and, and set up these vast vast networks of pipes throughout all our cities but they haven't really been able to keep up we've always been trying to it's always been a reactive response that always the population has already always outstripped supply so we've had to work really really hard to um, build wa- build our water supply because city dwellers have come to this false belief that water is really just a simple matter of turning on a tap but we turn on the tap and it's this beautiful endless supply and we're not really dealing with our um, ecological and hydrological realities, which is where we live in a sunburnt country, as our book says. And so what happens is the water runs out. Sometimes we just simply don't have enough. We have these long periods of drought and, and we have to turn to other measures. Now, one of the things that we you could do is augment that supply chain, but what they've actually often done is restrict the ones that we have. So we've turned to water rationing more often than not. And so many of us will know that on different days we're allowed to water our gardens on, you know, odd days of the week or odd numbers of the street or allowed to, you know, during certain hours of the day. In, in the 1940s in Sydney, it was so bad at one stage that they had to let you have water in four hours in the morning and four hours in the afternoon. And that was all. So it can be really bad. And in the millennium drought in the 2000s that hopefully a lot of us do remember, Brisbane had a campaign where we were only allowed four minute showers. And if any of us actually use a sprinkler or watered our gardens, we were dogged in and fined by our neighbours. So it can be pretty draconian. And so always we've resorted for a long history of rationing supplies rather than augmenting. But the thing that comes through really loudly in our book is that as soon as it rains, we go back to using as much water as we love. We can go back to washing our cars, leaving our sprinklers on all day. And we have this obsession with green lawns. Um, we use really clean potable water for our sporting fields and our agricultural fields, and we use it for industry. like We use it to heat coal-fired power stations. We use perfectly good drinking water for something like that. And again, it just sort of becomes this idea of this limitless supply. And then um, we just act as if it's sort of business as usual, that dependency theory. We go back to that dam, we just think we'll be right. Then the other thing, the other strategy they've used is user pays. So we've gone with the ideas that we would introduce water meters. So in the 1930s, they introduced water meters, which was a way of regulating supply to some extent, but more importantly, getting some money for the supply so that they could build these ever greedy, insatiable need to put in more pipes and systems. And in the 1970s, that really went on speed with the neoliberal approach of you know user pays. And so basically it became um, cost would limit your use, but this is obviously a very important socioeconomic driver. So, if you're rich, you can have a green lawn. Um, so, green lawn becomes a status symbol. But if you're not, you are subjected to these restrictions. So, it becomes um, water's use as a sort of sense of power and affluence in some ways. But in the background, at all times, the population is growing and the dams aren't getting any bigger, and we're not getting any more rain. And what we're finding is that if the population in Australia does reach the forecast of another 10 million by 2050, which isn't really that far away, we're actually not going to be able to just keep using those path dependent solutions. So Perth was the quick first one to try something new. That seems to be always the one out and in front of us all. And in 2006, they introduced, they introduced desalination plants. And so that's the idea that you can recycle salt water and turn it into drinking water. And since then, gradually, every city's introduced that. But it's often very expensive. It's often been contested. It's not always seen as a particularly appealing strategy. We do love our dams. And so sometimes they have been made smaller or put on hold. Brisbane's, for example, is on hold at the moment. We have one, but we're really not using it. And the really, really big one that we really can't get past is recycled water. And even though you know Los Angeles and Singapore and London and all of these cities have managed quite well to drink this water without developing any double heads or diseases, we can't get around that yuck factor. And so we just, even though in reality, lots of us actually drink water that's got lots of yuck in it. The, what pours into a dam is not pure drinking water, and a lot of particularly rural cities are drinking recycled water anyway but in the cities we have seemed to have this really really big problem and I'm we're suggesting that it's largely psychological it's this yuck factor Um, and when they put it to the vote as they did in Toowoomba in 2004 they were able to run this fantastically successful campaign which the locals called Pooowoomba which meant that uh, no one was prepared to drink recycled water, and it's sort of been a problem ever, ever since. And the Productivity Commission basically says we need to do all of these things: we need our dams, we need desal, we need recycling. And what we're saying in our book is that the strategies we've been using are actually going to run out of, you know, puff. Really, we're going to have too many people. Uh, we have climate change. We have less rain, and so we can't keep relying on harvesting it. So what we're looking at is why why are we not embracing some of these other strategies these other solutions that are used elsewhere in the world and they've been tried and tested here as well but we just don't seem to be able to go that other step so i suppose the question i'm going to leave you with is why why are we not prepared to um, move away from that dependency that i mentioned at the beginning to look at some braver strategies so thank you
1: Thank you so much for that, Margaret. I'm sitting here with my glass of water, feeling like it's the most precious commodity in my room at the moment. And I know <laughs> when, I, when I was reading that part of the book, I was feeling really guilty because I know exactly that drive to, you know, once once those restrictions ease, you're just straight back into pouring that water out as, as much as you like. And I've just come back from London where I'm sure I drank lots of um, recycled water without knowing, and maybe that's the key to not have to know too much about it. Um, Thank you so much. I'd like to turn now
2: if I I, I just jump in please Claire. Um, Yeah really interesting Margaret and of course all water is recycled so um, yeah certainly the stuff we're drinking. Um, Can I just ask quickly that it's really interesting Just wonder if you could just comment briefly on the other big challenge that we face and that you are an expert on, and that is flooding. The forecast for this summer is not good in terms of flooding. Could you just say a few words about what we might do and what is the big obstacle to us responding effectively to that threat, which is not going anywhere? the reason we call the book cities in a sunburnt country is it's a land of drought and flooding rains
3: yeah okay thank you um yes we are looking at a triple r nina 80 chance at the moment so a third wet summer is probably upon us and our catchments are already very very wet so the chances of flood are particularly high you're absolutely right to put these together and one of the problems that we have is that we don't put them together very often and so the same issues of Flood's are a dependency. We rely on our flood mitigation dams, yet we build on the floodplain. But they actually work quite well together. And there's a very interesting debate going on at the moment about if you let some water out of Warragamba Dam in Sydney, does that allow you to manage floods differently? So there's a, there's actually ways that you can manage flood that actually help drought and vice versa. So I think we see them as a dichotomy of floods and drought, but they're actually the same problem.
2: Does
4: that answer enough for discussion purposes? Yeah, sure. That's great. Can I jump in there too? Uh, Another theme of the book that I think we should touch on. When you started, we went back to the Indigenous people's approach to water problems. And I think one of the things that's emerged over the last 200 years is not just the path dependence approach, but also that we've had a very uniform approach between the cities, networks dams, similar sewerage systems, engineering solutions, because we've learned from each other, because, okay, how do you solve this problem? Oh, what did they do here? Let's get this engineer from interstate to come in and, and solve our solutions. It strikes me, and I, I, I'm glad I'm in the sense that I'm away from everybody else here. In Adelaide, the, the next coming La Nina is not a bad thing, because for us, it means a cooler summer, less likelihood of big fires, and we don't get the same flooding rain so we go nah, okay bad luck the point being you need local solutions and indigenous people knew that you needed a solution that was suitable for your environment for your climate type for the type the 12 seasons that you have in your area and you had to live within that so a solution for adelaide maybe we try and capture all of our stormwater because we don't have very many. In uh, another part of Australia, that can't be a solution because you couldn't possibly stop all of the stormwater uh, and capture it. You capture a portion of it or you do something with it. So again, another theme I think that uh, we're hoping that looking back through history might suggest is that over time, as you get to learn more about your region, and we're still in many ways still learning about how Australia operates that perth solutions will be different from adelaide solutions will be different from melbourne or different from brisbane the problems are different and therefore the the mix needs to be different as well as thinking about how do we break out of path dependent approaches
1: thank you thank you all so much for for adding to that discussion i'll turn now if i may to you ruth um welcome could you please tell us more about how the physical environment has shaped urban water supply and disposal and how urban water networks have shaped the physical form of Australian cities? Thanks, Claire. And, and thank you to um, the
5: organisers for having us today. And of course, I acknowledge and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Nambry peoples of the lands on where I live and work. And I think um, picking up there on, on what Martin was mentioning, it's, is as much as we have seen most of our capital cities form on rivers, on river flats, on um, bays where they're accessible for navigation, as well as often important for defense, as well as water supply, all of those geographical areas do have their own differences. And so there might be similarities, but of course the physical form of those places has been really significant. And all all the things that made those places really attractive to to British colonizers had also for generations been incredibly valuable to the Indigenous peoples who call them home, whether they were wajak or Ghana people or the people of the Kulin Nations, just to name a few. And so we had this, I suppose, inevitable confrontation in these really important sites um, between British uh, colonizers and Indigenous people. And I suppose Interestingly, although we have seen similar water management tools applied in these different contexts, different town planning approaches were also being employed because of the different periods in which uh, capital cities were being developed. So Sydney looks very different, um, not least because it's a much more uh, curvy and hilly terrain compared to Melbourne, where you have a much more uh, geometric kind of town planning so it's it's really interesting though to see that despite some of those differences in terrain and despite some of the differences in town planning the actual supply of water itself and the disposal does share some similar qualities right right through um, until i suppose quite recently and of course those rivers and those uh, sea waters um, underground water they weren't only the source of water often they become the drain, often the sink for a lot of our pollution. And it's again only been relatively recently that, you know, despite early attempts to try and protect some of those areas for very um, practical reasons to stop the spread of disease, it's taken us quite a while, I think, um, not really until the 1960s and 70s, for you know, practical change to, to take place and to to see those areas as, as something worth looking after and as as valuable to the amenity of our cities so that our cities are much more um i suppose clean and more attractive and they attract tourism the real estate and all these sorts of things that we're much more familiar with in our cities so physically it's quite interesting um that another uh, approach that all of our cities as as margaret mentioned have have adopted is the gravitational system that putting in a dam upriver damming a river and that's a trend that wasn't just happening across australian cities it's it's something that british empire the british empire's engineers also uh developed in many of their colonies it was a really common approach um the idea i suppose of of cleaner water upstream and then piping that into the city so that was a really common solution to that problem of water supply but of course that wasn't as clean. Sometimes the the pipes were lead, and so that caused all sorts of other health problems. So we do see a little bit of, I suppose, tension around some of these solutions, um, that they're not always as effective immediately as um, uh, I'm sure their architects hoped they would be. Uh, Sometimes things didn't quite go as planned. And one of the other trends, I suppose, we see in all these cities, and touching again on what Margaret said, is that increasing water supply tended to increase demand as well so people became really familiar really accustomed to having very reliable very um abundant supplies of water by the the mid-20th century. This is sort of the heyday of water use. I think, you know, um, older generations who um, might have remembered the the decades prior to the Second World War would have been much more familiar with the shortage, much more familiar with the labour-intensive way of using water um, in the cities and, and the kind of cultures that were around that of, of not having a bath or a shower every day, of, of reusing kitchen water or laundry water in the garden. Um, so I think, it's interesting to see that path dependency is not only technical or technological, but also cultural as well. And going back to the um, question about that um, influence of our water supply networks and and disposal on on the urban form, I think we especially see, and it comes out in our book, um, how it's changed our very houses and uh, the very look of our suburbs. We've gone from having much of our um, the water infrastructure of our homes quite distant from the actual house and then slowly all of those services have crept inside we we aren't walking far uh, to go to the bathroom that's we don't have to actually get involved in any of the comings and goings of water into our house and again that has changed the way that we use water in quite interesting ways And I might just add, in terms of the the new technologies or new strategies, Perth, as Margaret mentioned, did use a lot of underground water initially. It was pretty shallow. It was often polluted. But it's come full circle, actually, with the um, greater awareness of the extent of an aquifer underneath the city of Perth. And that's become a place to actually first draw a lot of groundwater from, um, from the 1960s and 70s, And now to, I suppose, uh, buttress uh, water supplies as well as to protect wetlands is now where a lot of recycled wastewater is being stored, which I think for Perth it thankfully hasn't been a political site of debate, which I think becomes a real problem. It's also, I suppose, got that buffer um, act where the it's not as though recycled water is going straight into dams it's going into the groundwater system it's sitting there for a while and then being brought back into the system, so I think there's a. An element of palatability there that that aquifer actually affords the water system it's it's quite a a
1: gift in a city which has very scarce water supplies. Thank you. Thank you so much. I I think you've touched on a few of the things that I had in my next question, which was about those commonalities and differences between the water histories in those those various cities. Mm. I'm sure we all want to know about our specific one. So if you've got anything more to speak um, to that about, that would be good. And also just again, um, if you could just talk about how international trends specifically influenced water management here.
5: So I think one of those big ones is that it wasn't just in Australia that that idea of user pays was coming into vogue in the 60s and 70s and, and of course, in the 80s. And this was actually sweeping the the Western world because, of course, with the changing approaches to uh, fiscal management in many governments, and of course, Martin and Lionel can speak more to those technical uh, changes in in terms of the fashions of, of public infrastructure spending and so forth, it became incredibly expensive to keep supplementing water water supplies. And also, there was a real shortage of options. Most of the rivers had been dammed, so they needed to find other ways that they could uh, allocate water uh, to, to users who were growing in number and also had certain expectations of what their governments might provide them so whether it was the us whether it was the uk there's a real concern in the 1970s around water scarcity and so that was became something water could be priced and so user pays comes in as a um, appropriate and acceptable way um, for for governments to to manage water it wasn't necessarily uncontroversial at the time plenty of people were rather unimpressed about the changes to the way that water was going to be um, billed and certain because prior to this, um, certainly in some cities in Australia, it was you could water quite freely based on the value of your home. That was how you would pay for for water. So that did dramatically change people's relationship, I think, with with water that they were using, and that was, of course, an international trend. And I think we've seen other trends like the rise of desalination. Again, not just an Australian adoption, um, as well as the recycled wastewater. That one's a little bit slower to to follow that trend. Um, and you know, we've we've seen uh, a whole circulation of engineers, of economists, of planners who travel around, um, and also the influence of international capital as we've we've moved towards corporatized um water utilities we've seen that these um big water companies either well usually i think the ones that have thrived in australia are european um they they have become involved in our water management and um you know they had a bit of a bumpy bumpy road initially i think as they established themselves and um as i think australian governments tried to figure out the right balance between um, public oversight and private interests but i think in those sorts of trends we've we've seen those um uh influ- international influences along with the ways in which we want to use water, the sorts of fashions, the sorts of expectations we have. Uh, Australians, even though uh, we are in a sunburnt country, have all the, I suppose, hopes and dreams of people who live in much wetter climates um, with much more, I suppose reliable rainfall without that extreme variability that we're so used to. Um, and so that creates a tension in trying to meet those expectations for for
1: water managers. Thank you so much. Um, as I say, I've just come back from the UK, where I was having showers with buckets in in the bottom of the shower because it is a user pay system. So that's what my parents had decided was a good way to go, and I felt mm. very decadent coming back here, not doing that, unfortunately. Mm. Um, my, my last question to you is, if you could please just speak. I know you touched on this earlier a little bit, but if you could talk to us about how cities are connected to the wider environment and ecologies a little more, um, not just around the urban footprint, but also how forestry and other land uses connect to urban water management.
5: Yeah, it's something that's been, um, I think, one of the valuable um, contributions that environmental history can make to studying um, the city and and urban water is is seeing that, that the city is not a closed system and that that water has to come from somewhere and it also tends to go somewhere. And that is often quite far out from what we might typically see as the city's borders and so I think you know as I've mentioned um the value of the dams to to our water systems is really one of those key sites where we do see that ecology in action in that there was initially these were quite contested about reserving catchment areas to ensure that the water going into dams wasn't filthy and that there wasn't uh you know cows wandering through and and muddying uh the waters quite literally so being mindful i guess of of where our water is actually coming from is is something that we all we can't just take for granted and of course a lot of our catchments are forested now i know that's an ongoing um i suppose controversial issue i think in melbourne about access to water catchments um they also become fire affected, and that was certainly a problem uh, for Black Saturday and earlier bushfires throughout Melbourne. It's also been a big problem in Perth where dryland salinity has really threatened not only dryland agriculture, farmers, but also our water catchments. And so there were real um, concerns there about ensuring that forests were remained in those catchment areas. And that came into tension though with concerns about the drying climate there because of course if you remove the trees more water will go into the dam so that caused a bit of a land management issue there of course my other favorite um example i suppose about of, of thinking more broadly about the ecology of our cities is the Werribee sewage farm this um not exactly a uh you know a, a site you would think of as being particularly exciting but this was very early on um, an important place for Melbourne because of course this is where waste is being sent out to very quickly though it becomes a farm it becomes a place that birds like to go to and now in addition to being a sewage farm it's a real hot spot for bird watchers and so seeing much more I suppose broadly how our cities interact how our own uh, behaviors around water and waste actually affect a much bigger, um, I suppose, environment than we we often give it credit to. I think it's really important to see how our cities are actually quite natural in many ways.
2: Thank you so much, Ruth. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, Ru- Ruth. Just to just to follow up that point, it's really interesting um, looking at the the full span of, of settlement, white settlement in Australia. How um our attitudes towards wetlands have changed. And now they're seen as an asset in um into communities whereas earlier they were they were seen as a menace. Yeah, something you had to drain. And uh yeah, so it's a really interesting point about the ware it sewage sewerage farm.
5: Mm, oh, wetlands, I mean again, another common approach, and again, not just in Australia, was. For for Europeans, the wetlands were not a welcome um, feature in in the landscape for a very long time, I would say until the mid 20th century, until views that, um they might have an ecological role to play were we're really appreciated and but by then enormous drainage programs had been underway to to get rid of wetlands because they were associated with disease mosquitoes they were usually a bit stinky uh they were often uh refuges for undesirable people um became the sites of, of rubbish tips So they've had to go through a real cultural and environmental rehabilitation um, over the past sort of 70 years to to get them um, to be, uh, I suppose, appreciated. And they also now are recognised as really important to water sensitive urban design, um, which is quite a remarkable turnaround for them. Margaret.
3: That's exactly my point Ruth, you've anticipated (laughs) me. That we're actually reconfiguring our cities now to put these blue green soaks back in because they work for floods for a start but also we've spent so much time altering our creeks and our, our our systems that they don't work anymore so yeah we're going full circle on that one too that these uh wetlands are actually being reintroduced to our cities which is an interesting development too
2: mm. yeah, because we we've altered the, the natural water cycle the natural water environment as you say margaret by um by filling in creeks or converting them into sewers and, and so forth and there's a heavily path-dependent element to that because uh, often these things are lost forever. Um, But it is interesting how we're we're sort of um, going back to older solutions that, again, I I think are informed by Indigenous approaches to to land use. We have got a question
1: that's come in from from one of our guests. I'm wondering if you'd like to have a look at that now.
2: Or uh, the question question is from Taylor Coin. Question for the group: Often research into water histories and water management slash government seems to begin with a lofty goal to talk of a one water approach. However, I've noticed a trend that people start talking on drainage and drinking water, but then it quickly becomes all about drinking water. Has your project slash research been attentive? to presenting a balance between those themes, If so, how, and thank you. Uh, Thank you, Taylor. Um, Who'd like to answer that one? Oh, I can give it a go. Um,
5: Thanks, Taylor. I think it's a really um, important question and certainly one that I've noticed myself in the scholarship. And I think it's a tricky one um, to resist the temptation to to narrow one's view when uh, writing about urban water, because generally that, source-wise the the supply of drinking water um, and to a lesser extent its connection to drainage and sewage is very well documented and for historians we do love those sorts of materials we can go to those um, usually public works department or metropolitan board of uh, water suppliers they usually have wonderful annual reports that give us a really good insight into how that uh, system works what is less well documented is other uses of water or other ways that water might be valued and you have to kind of be a little bit more um you have to be attentive to those and you have to go looking for them in places that you might not expect and often when you go looking for those you realize that water in our cities is a lot more social and complicated than um ordinary or very sort of orthodox views of of water supply might um, reveal and instead we see how particular people end up in the more uh, wetland swampy areas or that water becomes a way to divide communities or that by having uh, rivers as drains they create all sorts of ecological problems and It's not really, I think, until the uh, 60s and 70s where you're getting community groups who are involved in trying to clean out those rivers. It's a really bottom-up process, actually, to to call back on Lionel's point there of people saying well we've had enough of this and we we want something different and that aligns actually with the rise of the green bands movement as well in sydney that there are people who are concerned about urban amenity and they are starting to question whether they want their their rivers and uh wetlands to be bulldozed and developed in in sort of the um i suppose the rise of the suburbs so i think there's definitely always that Extra effort you have to put in, as you know, Taylor, from from your own work, to resist that pull, but it makes for much more interesting histories, I think. And I I'd like to think we've we've tried to balance some of those in our in
1: our work um, to show how water is so much more than pipes and dams in our cities. Thank you. Thanks so much for addressing that, Ruth. If anyone else wanted to add to that, please feel free. Otherwise, I will um, move along and say hello to you, Martin, and ask you a bit of a question about your fabulous cross-disciplinary group. And the question is: Are environmental historians and economic historians really rhetorical sparring partners?
4: Thank you. Um, the answer—the the short answer—is no, <laughs> but the long answer is sometimes. I think what. The, the starting point is different. The. Question for environmentalists is frequently, firstly, what is the impact on nature? What are we doing to nature and how is it responding? And the perspective for economists is frequently to begin with, what are people doing? They're not considering the natural environment. But of course, they, you can't have one without the other and you can't have them operating in isolation and one of the great things about uh the book and working with people with different perspectives is you do have these discussions and saying well if this is an issue what was the response and what was the impact of the of 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 this behavior short term and long term i think one of the things i hope uh the economic historians were able to bring to the table was the perspective of people making often short-term decisions, which they thought were in their own best interests. They weren't considering the bigger picture and that there is a need for people to think longer term because that's the environmental perspective of what are the longer term consequences of some of these decisions. And there is a tension there frequently. I think the other side of this is that with my optimist hat on, what you do know about people is that they can change very quickly and behaviors can change very quickly I've been trying to think as people were talking I was reading in the paper the other day I think it's one of the Pacific Islands where they're having a drought and so they've come up with a competition for the worst garden and people are buying to have to win the prize because they let their garden die because they don't want to spend water on it you can change people's behavior by changing their incentives Uh aha that's an economist's approach but that incentive can be aligned with the environment aha that's an environment environmentalist approach and what we have to learn is how to to bring those two two things together on a related idea but slightly different like about 150 million other people i've been looking at house prices recently not buying just looking but one of the things that you notice is houses that have solar panels on their roofs are actually now seen as being more valuable than houses that don't have solar panels and as we were talking I was thinking when will we get get to the stage where a house that has a dry soil toilet as the additional toilet be seen as more valuable than the house that has three full flush uh, bathrooms it probably will happen over time as people start to realize the costs of those things and behaviours and approaches change. So people can change their attitude to what is normal or what is acceptable or what is fashionable. People can change their behaviours very dramatically and quickly about uh, the willingness to pay or their willingness to sacrifice or something, or socially what's regarded as, you know, if I was sitting here smoking now, you'd all be looking at me very strangely, because that's no longer socially acceptable. And yet, Forty years ago, that was how I signaled that I was cool, calm and in control. So we can change the people's, um, thinking about things and they will change quickly over time. And that's an optimistic approach. Yes, but and often it takes some disasters for people to see the true costs of not changing, but the discussion between economists and environmentalists brings in all of these threads and says, these are the impacts, but we can change them. And sometimes, and the environments quite rightly say, you can't change that. You know, that's damaged forever. So therefore, perhaps we need to take a precautionary approach and avoid creating that damage. And again, we're learning some of those things that have caused irreparable damage and some things that haven't. Um, and I guess the other thing that uh, economists sometimes bring to the table, when I'm thinking particularly with regards to the question about wastewater one of the reasons that wastewater is often not discussed in great length is because the technique is out of sight out of mind we can push it out to sea and just let it disappear then that's the that's the cheapest fastest solution and everybody forgets about it or well, even now we're realizing more and more the consequences of that approach that the sea is not simply a, a bottomless Pit that we can keep dumping rubbish into, and that there will be long term consequences for us, and that maybe doing small, regular changes now can have long term, large changes in the future. And so that's where the discussion between economists and environmentalists is often very aligned that it only takes a small change in behaviour, or a small change in building regulations, or a, a small change in how much water per day households are using to have a magnified, huge impact on the environment down the track. And we need to be aware of it in both senses, both the negative sense, which we've been tending to ignore, oblate, and then in the positive sense, well, hang on, the fact that we need to change our approach to water doesn't mean that we all have to go out, have soil closet, toilets, drink from a plastic, one drink from plastic, drink from a a, a a cup of water a day and that's our ration and there's not going to be hair shirts and all the rest of it. It's going to be, well, perhaps we should just be more cautious about how much water we allow to be used in uh, the coal mining industry or perhaps, you know, agriculture uses a huge amount of water. They've started to change their water behavioural techniques because it's become expensive. Certainly the, the all of the uh, old style huge irrigation sprays that used to get thrown up into the air for hours at a time in the full heat of the day are now regarded as completely crazy things to do. It wastes so much water, it costs so much, drip irrigation, that sort of thing. You still produce the food, but you do it much more efficiently. So that connection between economists and environmentalists is a really interesting one because we can talk about, well, if we tweak that, there could be a huge long-term impact that way, or we better stop doing this because it's having a huge long-term impact. And that's where it's a really interesting conversation.
1: Thank you, Martin. I I feel like I should give a right to reply to the environmental historians present uh, in case you have anything you wanted to add to that.
3: I'll have a go, Ruth. I'll go first. I I think Martin's points are very well made, and that we do bring strengths to each other. Um, and he's right about environmental impact and economics being closely aligned. And one of the ones I was thinking of immediately is um, going back to Ruth's point too about how water is cultural. So we have to be mindful that we're looking at culture and nature as well. And that, and and one of the things that we can do is in the Millennium Drought, we save liters and liters of water because of um, technical innovation. So whilst our technical innovation is, we think of maybe dams and and pipes and drains, changing our washing machines and changing our uh, to dual flush toilets, which is South Australian invention, has actually made a lot of difference to how much water we actually use. So in the millennium drought, Queensland was using litres and litres of water, but because we changed to um, water saving devices, which you see in every electrical shop now, that they've become normalised. So, you know, the, even 20 years ago, we just used a lot more water when we flushed a toilet or, or did a load of washing. So, that's a good example, I think, of Martin's point of where economics and environment can come together and that an economic imperative of making a washing machine that's affordable, that saves water, has a long term impact. So, they do align nicely. So, Ruth, you may have more you want to add there, but I think we bring strengths to each other's work.
5: Oh I suppose I'd just echo echo those comments and and add that I think in when it comes to urban water we're often but not only thinking about water resources and once something becomes understood as a resource then we fundamentally do rely on economics to some extent to really make sense of how it's used and how it might be preserved and uh, managed so I think you can't approach this kind of project from just one perspective, of course, bringing in other areas that might be more difficult to assign um, an economic value to well that's where the environmental perspective has become useful and sometimes that actually helps us understand why those areas might be maligned or or underappreciated is because they aren't economically valued or they are seen as waste or disposable so that's really i think where it's useful to bring our perspectives together because we're kind of getting i suppose that insight into how parts of our cities have been ordered around what we value and what doesn't have a
2: price. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much.
2: Oh, uh, Claire, okay. um yeah. we, we have a question, uh, just before I ask the question, just to reiterate Martin's point about small changes involving individual actions, adding up to something very powerful. One of the themes I think of the book is that. The, the idea that using water restrictions is a blunt instrument for solving the problem, and a far, far more effective approach is to think about individual changes that people can make. Um, so I wanted to get to a question from Harrison Croft, which I'll read out. Uh, Hello, I would love to know what evidence you found tying dam construction to people's emotions and changes in water use over time. Did this show up in annual reports or was it felt more locally? And by extension, did this shift occur differently in different parts of the continent? Uh, many thanks. So thanks for the question, Harrison. Um, anyone like to have a go at that one? I can I can have a little stab.
5: Um, I think one of the... Um I suppose continuities, continuities we see with dams, mainly because of their scale, is that they really quite wondrous innovations. They really uh, capture people's imaginations, and and particularly people um, historically for whom this kind of enormity, um, the the scale, the amount of labour the scale of infrastructure that is being built really captures people's um, attentions it excites them they're great sources of employment and most importantly and I think this um, I suppose feeds into those emotions around it is that they're often I suppose celebrated um, very very much so by governments and in newspapers so they're kept, they're they're very much in the public eye they're photographed they're celebrated they um are grandly opened to the to the public so they're really um I suppose quite exciting uh constructions and when the dam might overflow which is that sign of great abundance this is a spectacle people are picnicking there's you know a right into the 60s and 70s um, people quite regularly picnicking at dams and and really appreciating um the the spectacle of the concrete dam as well as the uh reserved catchment the forest the parkland around them and they're often landscaped as well so they're really designed for the public in in all kinds of ways so there's a real appeal there and i think it's partly that history that resonates still when we are talking about uh new approaches to water management um and we hear this a lot particularly for rural um parts of Australia we need to build more dams and of course that's predicated on the fact that it's going to rain there and that there's a river to dam but still people have got that I suppose sense of of comfort there that dams have been associated with water security um of course what is less, um, I suppose, less comfortable is the problems that can be caused by those dams and the enormous ecological changes that can be affected and even the human changes when settlements um, like Jindamine, for instance, are moved to make way for, for dams. So it's it's mixed emotions, I think, but there's there is certainly... A spectacle there um that I think really captures people's imaginations, and that's something I think that um we can't underestimate it when we're when we're writing these sorts of histories. Margaret?
3: Yeah, I totally agree. And I was thinking about the word scale because it's it's that the, these are often state government projects; they affect an entire region, so thousands of people do turn out and are affected by them. You don't get that same source of emotional connection when they're opening a new sewerage pipe or um, a drainage system or draining a swamp you don't that's a very very local so going back to taylor's question about you know localized or or, you know so the you're not getting the spectacle and you're not getting the emotional connection with a sewerage pipe so i just wanted to put those two as in contrast and i think that's why those things often don't make it so much to the the literature that's dams you'll get newspaper accounts you get all the promotional brochures they're 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 hugely celebrated but often the uh, the pipeline that's probably cost a fortune and lots of time and made a lot of difference to a very small suburb doesn't get that attention.
5: And I must um, just add to that on the flip side. I mean, I mentioned the spectacle of them overflowing, but they're also a source of great anxiety. Whenever there's been um, quite extended droughts historically, quite often um, the, the media will take photographs of dams at, you know, frighteningly low levels. And so we see seeing that a lot actually from the US at the moment with um, Lake Mead and these historic, you know low levels of water. and that's a source of great concern and anxiety for people. it's it's suggesting quite rightly that something is terribly wrong. and you know you've got a sense just because of the huge enormity of that um, area that it's going to take a hell of a lot of water. To to raise that dam level again, so I think people are very clued into the the visuals of of the dam, Um, whether they're physically going there or not. It's a very easy concept to to make sense of in a way that maybe desal isn't. It's a little bit too technical, Um, and a dam, on the other hand, it's like a big bucket. Um, You can see if it's full or it's not, and I think that really captures people's attention.
4: I think I would also add to that, that particularly, uh, it's almost like the the era of great dam building is now behind us, that there is a link between dam building and nation building. And that the part of the pride of the dam building was this whole, ideology is the wrong word, but this whole feeling that the nation was becoming stronger and we were becoming more in control of a continent. If we could control the water supply, dams are a clear example of control. And they're also a, an example of, at the time, perceived security. That with more and bigger dams, we wouldn't have to worry. With more and bigger dams, we're in charge. We've got enough water for everybody now. You know, The problem then is distribution or whatever the, the lower level problems are. And one of the things that climate change is uh, challenging And one of the things that the development of Australia up to this point is now challenging is when we've used most of the easy points of to dam, the water is not falling necessarily where it used to fall. So suddenly you've got a bucket, not under the leaking sky, but in the wrong spot. And maybe therefore the the dam, even though, as as Ruth quite rightly points out, is still clearly used as as a sign of anxiety as the levels drop. It may also now no longer be the, secure, the, the, the sign of security for the country that it used to be because it's not going to be able to do that job that we've relied on it for so long. And we may need to look for other solutions like changing behaviours. In fact, I think one of the more interesting ideas that I heard when we were talking and reading and writing the book was that perhaps one of the ways we could have become more water secure was to build fewer dams. And if we had done that, then we would have to use less water and we wouldn't have fallen into the, to the trap of well, water's cheap, water's plentiful, water's always there, water will always be supplied by somebody else. We wouldn't have fallen into that trap. Now, that can't be undone, but all, all I'm saying is it, it, it does reflect upon where dams sit in our consciousness of, of their importance. And maybe that importance now is being challenged by external factors uh, in the same way that things like sewage farms and uh, waste treatment pro um, waste treatment plants, if they're one point five meters above sea level this year, they may not be one point five meters above sea level hundred years from now, because obviously the sea level has risen. So again, things will have to change. What we do will have to change in response to those things. So past certainties are not necessarily quite as useful as they used to be for us
1: thank you thank you all for your insights into into this part we also had a comment from Vanessa who's in in Western Australia and joined us um about people still using for example I think it was the Mundaring we um over there for picnicking and, and so forth now Martin if I could just pick up on something um that you mentioned earlier you you spoke about the fact that um Australians disposed of waste in the sort of out of sight out of mind manner um and I was wondering what were the factors you think that made people so reluctant to improve water waste
4: uh okay I think reasonably easily it was seemingly costless that if you have a, a a pipeline that's pushing waste out to sea and it's not coming back for you to swim in, which is actually part of the reason why things changed, then it was it was sorted, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And interestingly, I think some of the first suggested solutions as people started to realise that uh, our current king was swimming in polluted waters uh, off Sydney 30 years ago and commenting on it, uh, the first solutions were, well, let's just make a longer pipe push it further out to sea and you know keep going <laughs> and you that that that's uh, that's easy and i think it's taken us a long time to appreciate a there's damage being done there just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not being damaged but i think too uh, and again this is with a, an economists hat on these things can have value and the fact that culturally we regard waste as having little value that too, is, is being challenged and it, in a sense a return to historical uh, thinking. I mean, night soil for many years was regarded as a valuable product. What you did with it was difficult, but it was useful for growing plants. It was useful for raising animals. It was useful as a way of returning nutrients to the soil. And it was only when populations grew so large and, and the Intensity or density of the population grow so high that it became difficult to manage that. That people started to object to the smell or to the risks of disease. But the solution, which was throw it all away and 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 don't look at it, we're now also starting to say, well, perhaps that's also a, a very wasteful approach to a, a resource that we could be doing a lot more with than if we were doing doing something with it, we might actually start to appreciate its value even more. So the, the, the short answer is simply that it took a long time to change because the perceived solution was cheap. Just ditch it out to sea. As we start to appreciate that that solution is is not so good and that there's a high cost to that. And as I say that, I'm thinking in South Australia, the cost was things like seagrasses disappearing off the, off the shoreline and in other parts of uh, the country, it was huge increases in the amount of bacteria in the water or damage to fisheries and so on. And we start to go, oh, hang on, this is this is a costly approach. Then surprise, surprise, people put their economics hat on and say, well, is there a cheaper way that we can avoid these costs and and, and dispose of the waste in a, in, a, in a better way? And so I think that, again, it takes time to make those changes, but it's, uh, starting to dawn on us that uh, the old uh the old approaches were not so good
1: thank you martin um and keeping that in mind i've got what might be a bit of a loaded question as my final question uh, of the day for the panel which is given all of these problems all of these things that we've discussed all of these challenges how optimistic can we be now about australians making changes to respond to future environmental challenges
4: well i'll, I'll jump in first and just simply say that Partly it depends on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Uh, I'm an optimist and I think we can meet the challenges, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be painful. And one of the things that governments have to decide and we have to decide as a community is who's bearing the costs and how they bear them. And I can see Margaret in my screen. And when I see Margaret, I'm thinking floods. And uh, the people who are bearing the costs of Uh, massive flooding over and over at the moment, clearly that is not a viable approach. And it's the the solutions we have at the moment are a very band-aid approach. And we're going to need to think about a much longer term uh, process, not just of where people are living, but how people are insuring themselves, how people are building homes, how we are having perhaps areas that uh, are free from residences and other and other approaches and it's going to have to be a longer term approach and at the moment there are groups of people who are bearing a very high cost for that lack of forethought so i'm an optimist yes we can make those situations better but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be uh without pain or uh some people actually getting getting hurt and what you hope is that that's going to be minimal but we don't know
3: thank you anyone else I'll go. I think there is hope. One of the things that our book did show though, it does actually often take a crisis to make change. Um, and, and climate change is a crisis. So we are going, and also if we're going to pursue population growth, that is going to be a crisis. So if nothing else, and I'm, this doesn't sound particularly optimistic, but I think necessity will force us to make big changes. So I, I am very confident that we have the technology. I'm very confident that we have a lot of solutions and research and some very smart people around the table making these decisions. What we don't have is the political will. And partly I think that's as as, as Martin's rightly pointing out, there's gonna be a lot of pain for a lot of people, but it's not shared evenly. And that's coming around to those local solutions rather than just having a, you know one size fits all policy nationally we've all got to start making a difference every single one of us but we can
1: thank you um Lionel Ruth any finishing thoughts for us
2: I, I would just say here here um I'm optimistic not only about the technology that we have like uh, Australians are developing techniques for purifying water worldwide but also at a smaller scale companies like who gives a crap who that are raising money to improve water, water management worldwide. These individual actions, I think, plus the future technological change that we'll oversee in the future. I think there's cause for optimism, but yeah, I agree. There is a, a potential spanner in the works of the costs being shared and distributed unevenly and, that to me is is the biggest issue for us to to sort through
5: thank you ruth oh well um i i too see that there are there are very positive and promising um uh, strategies and tools at our disposal even as we face a warming world um, with very severe challenges um particularly in australia where we do already have very extreme um, variability and I think I suppose I'd echo Margaret's point around the ways in which our water management does seem to rely on crisis to actually pro- provoke change and to get public, I suppose, interest or political interest, perhaps more importantly. And I suppose I I would hope that uh, we we as a as a nation can approach those challenges with a a bipartisan uh, commitment to uh, equity and to using the best possible science and uh, I suppose social sciences as well as hard sciences to to make sense of those challenges, as well as indigenous knowledges as well, who can hopefully um, be better better brought into the ways in which we understand water in, in our nation.
1: Thank you so much. And um, I I like what you were saying before, Margaret, it is incredible what we can achieve when we're forced to through uh, various crises that happen. So I'm, I'm going with Martin's optimistic outlook and running with that. It's been such a privilege to talk to you all. It's been a fantastic session and thank you all for being here as well.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the festival of urbanism make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org see you next time